Amen. Thank you, choir. Jim and Lauren and Pat, it's good to have y'all back with us. Pat Malloy Berthelot, who was organist here for over 30 years, she said it's always good to be back home, to come back home. And Lauren, who was pianist here for 14 years, and they actually overlapped some in the early 90s, I believe. And Lauren's kids and I grew up together at First Baptist Nashville as well, so it's good to be in the house of the Lord. I'm going to take some pastoral license, okay? It may be a little after 1130 when we leave today. If you miss our service online, for those of you watching at home, uh, for those of you who miss it on TV, I mean, you can go online and watch the entire thing. But I, I have a lot on my heart today, and to stop and acknowledge that would be appropriate and authentic, I think. So three things I just want to pray for right now as your pastor. Is that okay if we just take a minute to pray right now? Um, I got a text this morning. Many of you know Jack and Drew Ann Freeman. Uh, they've taught preschoolers, my kids, for they've taught preschoolers in this church for over 25 years. They've served in leadership uh, in this church for a long time. Their grandbaby is fighting for her life right now at Centennial Medical Center, uh, Grace. So appropriate name. We just sang Amazing Grace. So we need to pray. They asked for us to pray. And as their church family, I think that would be appropriate to do so. I also want to pray for all of our teachers and students who start school and, uh, tomorrow and in the coming weeks. If you are an educator or administrator or custodian or, or work in our schools, would you just stand quickly so we can just see where you, you are right now? If you are working in our preschool even, uh, my wife, I know, is working in the preschool. Go ahead, keep standing. Keep standing, Rebecca. Thank you. Yes, Lisa. Excellent. Marcy, thank you. We're going to pray for you. You can have a seat. Kids, if you're starting school in the next uh, week or two, will you stand again so we can see you? And he was going back. Thanks, Davey, Knox, Caroline. Good to see you guys. Sophie, excellent. All right, you can have a seat. The, the third thing I, I want to pray for this morning is just the, the victims of violence in our country again. Um, you think about... California, just this morning hearing about Ohio, um, El Paso, uh, we, we need to lift these, these things to the Lord. So let's go to the Lord and pray for these three things uh, now. Lord God, as we come into your house today, we are burdened, we are distracted, our anxious thoughts consume us. God, we are pleading the cause right now of little Grace Freeman. We lift her to you. We ask that you would heal her body. We ask that you would do what only you could do and defy medical experts, defy medical science, God. We pray that your healing hand would be on her in a powerful, effective way. We pray for peace that passes understanding for Daniel and McCall, for her parents. We pray for Jack and Joanne and all of those who are around her bed right now praying for her, God. We lift the doctors and the nurses to you, that you would give them wisdom and discernment that comes from you alone. We pray that your will would be done and that we would rejoice in your goodness and your faithfulness no matter what you choose to do, God. God, we lift up all of those who are going back to school in the next day or week or two, that you would help them to be missionaries in the field, 
that you would send them out as, as sheep among wolves, that they would be your hands and feet to those who desperately need a touch from you, need to hear from you, a word from you. God, we pray that you would give them boldness to shine as lights where they are. We pray for teachers and administrators that they would be able to uh, effectively share your goodness. We, we know that teachers shape the lives of children in such indelible, powerful ways. We pray that you would give them your spirit, your energy, your wisdom as they teach our kids. And God, for the victims of, of violence in this country, once again, we come brokenhearted to you. We pray that you would bring peace where there is bloodshed. We pray for those in Gilroy, California. We pray for those in South Haven, Mississippi, for those in El Paso, Texas, and now just this morning for those in Dayton, Ohio, that you would work through tragedy as only you can. We know that you are in the business of working good out of bad, and we pray that you would do so again in redemptive ways that lead to peace and not to more violence. God, we bring these things to you as your children because we know that your word says to cast our cares on you because you care for us. So we do so in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Amen. Thank you. All right. It's been a great worship service so far. We're going to hear a word from the Lord. I'm so grateful for Will Turner bringing us a word last week uh, from John, and I'm glad to be back in the pulpit this week. We're going to begin a new series for the month of August called Best Practices. And those of you who are in the business world, uh, you, you may hear this term a lot. I hope it doesn't bring up bad memories for you. But, you know, for, for me, I'm not very administratively minded. Business is not my forte. Those of you who work on committees with me will know that. I have some wild ideas, and you very gently let me know that, that we can't do those things, and that's okay. Uh, but you... People who work in organizations that, that use this phrase best practice know what it means. These are the, the standards which are kind of universally approved as being the best ways to do things, the most effective ways to do things. And we're going to apply that principle to our own lives during the month of August. My hope and my prayer is that as we look at these texts in the Gospel of John throughout the month of August, that we will come to see and believe that God's ways are best practices for our lives as individuals and corporately as a church. You know that we try to incorporate best practices into everything that we do. I pray that we'll be able to use that same principle as we look at our own lives. You know, I mentioned in the Herald article this month that every one of us pursues some vision of what we think is the best life, the, the best way to go for us. It's an idealized version of what we think a thriving life should look like. And that's what we believe is, what, is the good life. We all want to live the good life. We all want to pursue the good life. We're kind of chasing that as the American dream, you may say. There's a philosopher that I'm, I'm writing my dissertation on named James K.A. Smith. And he's, you know you're really intelligent if you have two middle initials, you know, James K.A. Smith. He says it's, it's not a question 
of whether you're chasing after the good life, but which? Which version of the good life are you pursuing? There's lots of competing truth claims out there in our culture, in our society, that all want to convince us that they are the key to living the good life. If only we will build our lives on this certain foundation, then we will have the good life. And my hope and my prayer is that throughout this month, by diving into these texts, that we'll become convinced that the good life only comes through the best practices. And the best practices are prescribed in God's holy word. Not only does our own individual good life happen in this way by following best practices, but also our church's life will thrive and flourish if we will commit to following the best practices as revealed in Holy Scripture. The good life for our families, the good life for our city, the good life for our nation, all these things depend on believing in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and following his prescriptions for life. With that in mind, let's stand this morning as I read our text out of the Gospel of John, John 12, verses 37 through 50. Hear now the word of the Lord, which leads to best practices. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, there's a lot of political activity in our city and in our nation over the last few weeks. We had our city elections last week. We had our, uh, some more presidential debates going on. And I've always admired and respected politicians that are willing to come to the table, willing to dialogue, willing to not only present their side of things, but also to listen and to hear other sides that are presented. But in this text, we see that Jesus 
is no politician. He's no ordinary delegate who has one side to present. He has the side to present. He's no ordinary leader. And the reality, the sad reality of this passage is the time has now come for him to walk away from the table. The time for negotiation is over. He has shared the truth about himself and about his heavenly father and the realities of the spiritual realm over and over again throughout his ministry. He's demonstrated this truth in in powerful signs and wonders and miracles. Nothing more is left to be said or done. His public ministry is over at this point. Did you notice how I'm sure, Gabe, you may have panicked when I started reading in verse 36 instead of verse 37, but I wanted to make that point clear in verse 36. You know the verse numbers weren't original. They're not inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Those were added around the 600 AD times. When it says in verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. It means he's walking away from the table. This is not like when Jesus hid himself in chapter 8 from the temple police who were coming to arrest him and kill him. He did that that time because it wasn't time to die yet. And neither is this like when Jesus withdrew to a mountain in chapter 6 after feeding the 5,000 so that he could be alone with the Lord, his heavenly Father. No, this, this time... When he walks away, it's an intentional act of judgment. It's a pronouncement of prophecy fulfilled among God's people. He's done with all of his teaching in the temple and in the marketplace. He's he's done with evangelizing the the Samaritans and the, the Greeks. He's done healing the sick and the blind and the lame. From this point on, for the brief time that he has left on earth, he's gonna be focusing his energy and his attention on his disciples and the new covenant community that they are about to lead, the body that we are now a part of, the Christian church. But before John begins to tell us about the upper room and the last supper in chapter 13 through 17, we're gonna see that if we've read the Hebrew scriptures, if we've read the Old Testament, like the prophet Isaiah, then we shouldn't be too surprised at the unbelief of the Jewish people here. This was predicted long ago by the prophet Isaiah. You know, many Bible scholars call the the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. Have you heard that before? There's so much in Isaiah about the coming Messiah, the Lamb of God who's gonna be slain for the sins of God's people. It's a long book. It's 66 chapters. It's an intense book. I love it. It's actually the most quoted book of the Hebrew scriptures other than Psalms in the New Testament. In Isaiah 53, for example, the prophet gives us this beautiful description of a suffering servant, the Messiah, who would come to save us. Look at verses 4 and 5. We read these scriptures a lot around Good Friday and Easter. Isaiah 53. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Praise God. That was written 800 years before Jesus brought that prophecy to fulfillment. But we shouldn't be too surprised at what's happening during Jesus' time because just three verses before those verses that we read, in Isaiah 53, verse 1, the prophet cries out in despair, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God, who's actually going to believe this gospel truth? Isaiah was prophesying not only the unbelief of his time, but also the unbelief of the Messiah's time. But my favorite passage in the book of Isaiah has to be chapter 6, where the prophet is originally called by God. Remember, he sees this vision of the throne room of heaven, and the Lord God is seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Remember this? He's high and lifted up. And there's this beautiful exchange where Isaiah acknowledges his sin in the presence of the high and holy God. And God sends a seraph with a coal to purge the sin from his lips. And, and then Isaiah responds to that cleansing by offering his service. Remember that? He says, here am I, send me. And God gives him a message. Usually we stop there because it's a really cool story. But if we keep reading, we see that the message that God gave to Isaiah was not a really pleasant, happy message to bring to the people of Judea, the, the Jewish people. It's a message of blindness. He pronounces condemnation on them and their unwillingness to believe with hard hearts. That's the text that John's quoting here in verse 40. He has blinded their eyes, it's Isaiah 6.10. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But Isaiah believed. He believed what the Lord said because he had seen the glory of the Messiah. He saw the glory not only of God the Father, but of the whole Godhead, the Trinity, the three in one of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why John says in verse 41 here, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus's glory, the glory of the Messiah, and he spoke of him. Isaiah had been forever changed by an encounter with the living three-in-one Godhead, the Trinitarian God. No wonder Isaiah wrote so much about the Messiah. He had beheld his glory with his own eyes. So now John isn't saying here that all Jewish people rejected the Messiah. Remember, Jesus was Jewish. John the Baptist was Jewish. And for people who hadn't beheld the all-surpassing glory of Jesus the Messiah, their belief was often predicated on more shallow things. So their belief, if they believe at all, was really tended to stay in the shallow end of the pool. They never really waded into the deep waters of faith. That's why it says in verse 42 here, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more 
than the glory that comes from God. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Their faith is not the kind of robust Christian faith that leads to eternal life. It's the kind of half-hearted belief that John describes that often follows a miraculous act of power that Jesus performs, like after Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6, and the crowds are going after him, and the, the Pharisees say, look, the world has gone after him, until Jesus starts to say things like, yeah, you need to eat of my flesh. Yeah, if you want eternal life and to participate in God's kingdom, you need to drink of my blood. And they say, gross. <laughs> they say, we're out. And they, they walk away. They fall away from the faith because of the hard teachings of Jesus. Anyone who wants to live must lose their life for my sake, as Will taught last week. That's what leads to eternal life, the kind of faith that surrenders all to Christ. Trade your entire earthly life for a better spiritual one. But this truth that Jesus tells, the truth of the gospel, is presented here as God's truth. He says, if I say it, then God says it. It's authoritative truth. It's truth with a capital T. That's why Jesus can confidently say in verse 44 that if anyone believes him, he believes ultimately in God the Father. Because all truth is God's truth. God is the author of truth. Jesus is going to say in chapter 14 that he is the truth. So believing God and believing truth is the same thing. And then Jesus says, whoever sees him sees God because they are one and the same. And this is the truth that Jesus presents. This is the truth of the gospel. And, and that truth that he presents is not an inconvenient truth. It's not an oppressive truth. It's not a repressive truth meant to judge us and make us feel bad. In verse 46, Jesus says that he comes as the light of the world so that we don't have to remain in darkness anymore. That's good news. The gospel that Jesus preached is not one about rules. It's not a gospel of sin management so that we can manage our sins effectively enough to get to heaven. That's not the gospel he proclaimed. The gospel that Jesus came to proclaim is one of freedom. It's one of liberation. It's one of joy and thriving. He came to bring us life and life to the fullest. The abundant life is what Jesus comes to give freely. He says in verse 47 that he doesn't come to judge. We already have a judge. By being born into this fallen world, we have a judge over us. The judge of sin and condemnation that, that hangs over this whole fallen world. But now we've been confronted with the truth claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and our judgment of sin and condemnation will all depend on how we receive the word of the gospel. That may sound scary at first, but again, this is not a word of condemnation or judgment. In verse 50, Jesus clearly says 
that this commandment from God, this good truth, this good news about the Savior who's come to rescue us and bring us into the light, that that truth is eternal life. And it is glorious. The key question for us then is, will we love the glorious gospel of Jesus more than the glory that comes from this world? What do we love more? What is it that our heart goes after? I love golf. I had a blast playing golf the last two days with 15 other men from Woodmont Baptist Church, the 26th annual Donnie Sherman Memorial Golf Tournament in Fairfield Glade, the Hills of Crossville. I had a blast, didn't play well, but I, I loved it. I love music. I love, I get fired up listening to worship music. This morning I put on Shane and Shane and was just having my hour of power before I came here today. I love rock and roll music at all, it moves me. I love tacos, man. I, any restaurant I go to in Nashville, I always try the fish tacos, gotta see who's got the best fish tacos around town. You know, our, our loves, our affections, the things that our hearts go after are powerful forces that shape us. Not only do they shape us, but I would argue they define us. They make us who we are. My friend, Fran Shaka, says that we chase what we love and we resemble what we chase. We chase what we love and we resemble what we chase. You know, uh, it's, it's true. If you love success, you're going to spend your life chasing it. And you will indeed look successful. If you love golf, you might abandon your family and spend way too much time and money trying to break 80 consistently. <laughs> Trust me, anybody uh, who thinks that the guys from our church that went on this, after playing with them the last couple days, I can guarantee you that none of us are in danger of that. You know, I, I once had a student in my youth group who I loved. He was a great kid. He was funny. He was sharp kid. He, he was so good with little kids. Whenever we did missions projects with kids, he was awesome with them. But he, he loved the idea of being a tough guy, of being a cool, tough kid. So he started hanging out with the other tough kids and doing the things that they did. And he got into a lot of trouble, of course, inevitably. And his parents, you know, asked me to sit down with him and talk to him. So I did. And I said, what's going on? And he said, oh, it's not good, Nathan. It's not good at all, man. These, these kids at school come up to me and they, they, they ask me if I have drugs. They're trying to buy drugs from me. It's like I'm a drug dealer. And I said, yeah, you, you love that, don't you? He said, what? No, 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 no. It's not good. I said, they think I'm a drug dealer. That's not good. I was like, I, I think you love that. I think you love that kids think that you're some really cool, tough drug dealer type at your school. And he said, you know, now that I think about it, he said, I was flattered when kids would ask me for drugs. I was flattered. And he, he just didn't realize where his heart was at. He didn't realize the things that he really loved. He loved this image of being a tough kid more than anything else. And that defined who he was. And what I'm realizing is that youth ministry is not much different from grown-up ministry. That they do these things because we do these things. Adults really are no different. 
The things we chase after define us. It's still true. The image that we love is the image we project. Just look at social media in a young person. You can tell what they love. You know, this kid didn't realize what his heart was chasing. It's like a dog chasing a car. It seems like fun at first, the things that we chase, but have you ever seen a dog catch the car? Not so fun at that point. Morgan's parents had a dog that would chase the delivery trucks every time they came to the house. Guess how that dog met her demise. Um, Our hearts go after harmful things. Our hearts go after things that are dangerous. Remember John 10.10, Satan is trying to kill us physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories, just churning out counterfeit gods one after the other. This is why the Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Another translation says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. You know, St. Augustine said, you know, in the 400s AD, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. We chase after the things that we love and we resemble what we chase. You know, maybe the things that we love aren't even bad things. Family, great. Job, that's, that's okay. Achievement, those aren't bad things. But neither are they ultimate things. They are not the ultimate thing. Why do we chase these things? Why does our heart go after things that are harmful? It's because we believe that they are the key to living the good life. We believe that they are best practices that lead to flourishing and thriving in our lives. Our loves are driven by whatever it is that our particular idea of thriving looks like. When Jesus makes the claim here, in the last words of his public ministry, that the commandment that he gives us from God is eternal life, he's saying that the good life The abundant life is found only in God's truth, in God's ways, in God's word. Jesus tells us that the gospel, the good news that that brings abundant life, is found by putting all of our faith, all that we are, all of our body, time, talent, treasure, everything into him and him alone. So then, what are these best practices that lead to flourishing in this life and the next, I'm, I'm fully convinced, like I said from the beginning, that the best practices for a flourishing, abundant life are following God's prescriptions, not some corporate guru, not some academic standards, but the word of God itself reveals God's prescription for flourishing. It's not a how-to manual, it's a story. It's a narrative that if we give our lives to the narrative of the gospel, we will then live the good life. It's not easy. Die to yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Christ. 
Live to make others glad. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Give yourself away. It's not easy, but it's good. Until we're convinced of the goodness of Jesus Christ and his ways, we'll always wrestle with the idols of our heart that fail to deliver on the promises that they make. Jesus said, I know that the Father's commandment is eternal life, both now and forever. Do we believe that today with all of our hearts? You know, I grew up in a traditional Baptist church, kind of like this one. We used to sing this old hymn quite often. The words sometimes come back to me as I'm praying or, or reading the scriptures. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Lord God, I know I've been guilty of loving things that are not of you. I've chased after things that do not lead to flourishing, and in fact, they lead to harm and destruction. God, I pray that you would increase our desire for your glory and your grace. I pray that as the deer pants for water, so would we thirst for you. Plant deep within us a hunger for the righteousness that comes by grace through faith in your son, in your sacrifice, and what you've done for us. It's not about being good. It's not about following the rules, God. We know that. Help us to live that out and to believe that in our hearts as we learn to love you and your ways more than the things that this world has to offer. I pray that like Punchinello, like Rachel said earlier, that the, the things that this world says about us good or bad, that they would just fade away knowing that what you say about us, that we are loved more than we could ever possibly imagine and that you have called us to be your own. May that define us and compel us to live a life of thriving and flourishing both as individuals and as a church. We pray this in the powerful name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If you have never received the free gift of salvation that God offers to you to become part of his family by adoption through grace and faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and do so right now. There's no better time. If you feel like the hound of heaven has been after you for a while, if you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you in your heart to come forward and receive Christ, then I invite you to do so. Maybe you just realized today that you've been chasing after things that are not of the Lord, things that are leading to harm, and you've felt that, you've seen that. Maybe you just want to renew your priorities today and come to the altar and pray. It'll be open here for you. Maybe you want to pray with someone in particular. Trey, if you'll come stand here. Rachel, I think she's here. Jane, if you'll come up here as well.
if you want to pray with one of these prayer warriors, they'll be here to pray with you as well. Uh, if you want to join Woodmont, if you want to be a member of this church and commit to being a part of what God's doing here, we're not a perfect church. We got our, our hurts and habits and hangups, as our Celebrate Recovery friends say, but guess what? So do you. <laughs> and, and you can join us as we work together to be the body of Christ that God's called us to be. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, if you'll please stand and sing this song, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you.